Hey everyone, this is Sarah from Hamilton, and today we are going to be continuing our discussion of the inspection of jealousy from Numbers chapter 5, or alternatively called the Ordeal of the Bitter Waters. And I want to talk about some of the connections that this passage has with some other texts in the Bible, Old and New Testament. So, um, one connection that, well, before we get into that, I want to say, blah, blah, blah. Uh, if you enjoy these videos, if you'd like to support this content, please consider becoming a patron. I will be having a live stream this month, so... Woohoo, big, big live stream to party. Uh, so uh, we'll be doing a live stream this month, and I'll probably be setting up the video for that sometime soon. I haven't decided the date yet, but uh, you can uh, make a super chat, donate whatever amount, and I will answer your question. It will go, you know, for a million years long, and uh, uh, people will be dead before they actually get the answers, but it'll happen. Um, so we'll be doing that this month, but if you want to support this channel, uh, or if you'd like to have, and or, you'd like to have a one-on-one -on -one discussion with me over the phone or Zoom or equivalent, uh, please consider becoming a patron at Tier 3, which uh, is most humbly called the Elite Tier. Uh, tier 3 guarantees you a one-on-one -on -one discussion with me every month if you take advantage of that. I have a calendar that I have to for people to set up those uh, chats. Uh, the other tiers, you get some exclusive content, though I like to keep as much stuff as possible available for a general audience. Um, those... Uh, but if you just want to support the channel, you can do that. There's also like a, a link to donate 99 cents per month or whatever. Um, I don't want to beat the horse too hard, um, but uh, <laughs> I'll beat the horse reasonably hard. Um, so, yeah, there's that. Uh, you can take advantage of that every month if you would like. Uh, okay, so with the nasty bits out of the way, let's continue our discussion. So one of the interesting places that... Uh, uh, this text, Numbers 5, comes up later in the Bible, is in Daniel chapter 5. Uh, Daniel chapter 5 is a really cool text because uh, there's a lot of connections that it has, not only with earlier bits in Scripture, but with stuff that is outside the Bible. The book of Daniel is one of those texts that uh, biblical critics say is made up because it prophesies stuff accurately, so they have to say it's made up. The problem is that one of the things that it prophesies is uh, the Roman Empire, so... I mean, in the Roman Empire, is too late even for them to reasonably date it in. Plus, we have manuscripts before the existence of the Roman Empire. So what they do is they say, well, Daniel thought, unlike everybody else in the ancient world ever, that there were two separate kingdoms, a Median and a Persian kingdom. And despite making such a ridiculous mistake, everybody believed him immediately. And they all made copies of it. And within 50 years, it was accepted as scripture uh, of equal authority with Moses and the prophets, even though the text was much newer than a bunch of other ancient Jewish texts that they didn't accept. So, good good story. Good, good story. But Daniel uh, 5 is a huge problem for this because it says things like uh, to Belshazzar, uh, your kingdom is given to the Medes and the Persians. Well, that sounds like there's one kingdom. It's not two kingdoms, it's one kingdom. Uh, and uh, it's also a problem because Belshazzar is a, a very obscure figure. Actually, other than Daniel, uh, our sources for his existence are inscriptions from, that were contemporary with Belshazzar. And we also see little clues here in Daniel 5 of the political situation that we don't get explicitly, but we recognize when we, you know Babylonian history. So at this point in time, Nabonidus, Nabonidus was really into this moon god. And he was off in Arabia being all weird with the moon god. Uh, so he, Belshazzar was the dude in charge of things back at Babylon, but it was kind of a bad situation, obviously, because the Persians are on their way. Uh, Darius the Mede, by the way, I think is Cyrus the Persian. Okay, so same guy, in my opinion. Um, there is, uh, there is, I think, one plausible alternative theory, but I think 
still that, that the best identification for Darius the Mede is Cyrus the Persian. Um, Belshazzar is number two, and that's why he says whoever can interpret this riddle is going to be made number three in the kingdom. Well, you only know why he says number three in the kingdom if you know Babylonian history. But here it's kind of just a, one of these subtle little details here. Why doesn't he say number two in the kingdom? Because it seems, if you just know the narrative, that Belshazzar is the top dog. But in reality, he's number two. He's just representing the top dog who's off being weird in Arabia. Uh, so uh, here in Daniel 5, it's really important that we understand what's going on, okay? Because we can get the wrong idea from what we read in the text if we just read it superficially. Um, like if some very good, in my opinion, children's Bible cartoons, some cartoons that really stuck with me, present this as like a party. It's party time. Um, he made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And actually, the word here is great bread. He made a great bread for a thousand of his lords. He drank wine in front of the thousand. Uh, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father or his ancestor, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wise, his concubines might drink from them. These are the sacred vessels of God. They brought in the golden vessels, had been taken out of the temple from the house of God in Jerusalem. His king, his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine. They praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you will notice if you know the book of Daniel. These are the very materials out of which the great statue in Daniel's vision and Daniel chapter 2 are made. So kind of cool. Um, and at this point, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on, on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Okay, so that's enough uh, for me to make the point that I want to make, which is that this is... Uh, I'll, I'll just mention one more detail. When he uh, saw this, his color changed. Okay, so color changing, we see that the change of kingdoms in Daniel 2 uh, is represented and signified by a change of metals. It changes from the color, color of gold to silver, and from silver to bronze, from bronze to iron, so on. So here, that personally is enacted in the body of Belshazzar, and his knees knocked together. Now, there's a really interesting detail. So what's going on here? Well, first of all, we notice that there's a great bread Remember, in the inspection of jealousy, which we talked about in the last video, the woman who is suspected of infidelity would bring uh, a tribute offering, barley, to the house of God. And here, what do we see? There is a great bread, and we have a kind of festal house of God that's been arranged because all of these sacred materials from God's temple are being brought in here. But this is a very solemn occasion. They are not ignorant of the fact that the Persians are on the way and that the military situation is quite bad. There is a reason they are praising every god they can think of because their own gods have not really been great, so they're just going to go for everyone. They will seek absolutely every deity's favor. You know, gods they know, gods they don't know. They're going to invoke the god of Israel. Israel does the same thing. I mean, Israel brings out the Ark of the Covenant in the Battle of, uh, of Aphek in 1 Samuel 4, and they don't they get in trouble because you bring out God's presence. You invoke God's help. You say, God, will you come and be with us? He'll say, okay, I'll be with you. But that's not necessarily a good thing. That can be very dangerous. People, they want God to do something. But when he does, it will be God doing something, not him doing something for you. So uh, this is what we actually read about in, uh, in other uh, sources. We read about this in Hellenistic sources. We read about this in the Cyrus Cylinder. We read about this in uh, Xenophon. Xenophon is a great writer, by the way. Um, they talk about how there was a great feast on the night that uh, Cyrus came and he conquered uh, Babylon. And the great feast, this is a ritual feast. It's extremely solemn. No one is partying. This is ritual. 
uh, invocations of every deity they can think of. Okay, they, they're in trouble. Um, but it also mentions in the Cyrus Cylinder that he had taken all of the uh, idols from all of the surrounding temples and he'd brought them into Babylon. That's what's going on here. Those are the gods that he is invoking. And because the God of Israel doesn't have a statue in his temple, what does he bring? He brings in the sacred vessels of wine uh, and so forth. He brings them into the uh, uh, his festal room. And remember, the tabernacle and the temple is a house for God. There is a uh, an oven. That's the altar. Uh, there is a, a throne. That's the mercy seat. Uh, there is a table with candles on it. That's the table with the bread of the presence and the menorah on it. All of this stuff you have to understand in terms of domestic symbolism. And domestic symbolism is bridal symbolism because when bridegroom and bride come together, they become one flesh, and they also make one household where there is going to be one table. And because you are what you eat, when you eat the same thing, you become one flesh, which is why marriage is signified by a marriage feast, as I say all the time. Um, now, think of some of the other stuff that's going on. What happens in the inspection of jealousy when the woman has been unfaithful? Well, it says that her thigh swells up and she becomes barren. Here we hear we read that his knees knock together. Okay, this is the equivalent in male terms. What else do we hear? We hear that the uh, uh, it is a hand which appears and it writes something. Well, what goes on with the woman? There's a curse which is written by the priest, and a priest wears clothing that makes him symbolize God. So it's a kind of a miniature representation of God who writes something, and then she, uh, the woman will drink that down into herself. That's part of the material that goes into what it is that she is meant to drink. And all the stuff that she's drinking is meant to signify the divine presence. It's dust mixed with uh, water. The water comes from the basin full of holy water. The dust is from the tabernacle. It's been soaking up the presence of God for as long as it's been in there. And you have a curse, and a curse is simply the operation of God as it relates to those who are firmly resi uh, resistant to his gracious hand. So the woman drinks all of that into herself. And if she is, if she has to the very last moment, and we have to keep in mind, we're not just talking about a woman who's been unfaithful. We're talking about a woman who swears in the direct presence of God that she uh, has not been unfaithful um, and es effectively spits in his face. Um, and keeping in mind that th I think the primary meaning of that text, just like um, we, it says, don't yoke uh, two animals, which uh, don't yet yoke a uh, ox and a donkey, I think it is, together. Well, those animals are going to walk at different rates, so you would never yoke them together to begin with. I mean, some of these strange laws in the Pentateuch, uh, they would there was no risk of anyone ever doing them in a concrete sense. I mean, there's liturgical, spiritual meaning here. I'm not saying it was never implemented, only that that wasn't why it was seen as important enough to write down in the Word of God. Um, that's a bit of a side issue. Uh, but we see that Daniel 5 is all about the inspection of jealousy, because here it's the kingdom of Babylon which is being inspected. It's not just Belshazzar. It's the whole kingdom of Babylon. And remember, Babylon is what? A woman. Because Babylon, this goes back to Genesis chapter 11. Babylon, Babel, same word. Babel, Babylon. The beginning of his kingdom was Babylon. Extends all the way to Assyria. So it's Assyria and Babylon which send Israel into exile. Uh, in the book of Revelation, it's, uh, the false bride, Babylon. In Zechariah chapter 5, we see a woman 
who goes to the land of Shinar, the land of the north, and sets up her home. This is spiritual Babylon, the harlot Babylon, and cities in general are described in bridal terms. And cities have a feast in the middle of the city. Okay, Cities are associated with food, and that's why if you just go anywhere in the ancient world, you're going to find that the regular civic rituals, which are going to bind the city together as a single organism, are rituals which bind them uh, from heaven to earth, i.e. sacrificial rituals. All the meat you buy in the meat markets can be sacrificed. And they're going to bind people with each other because everybody kind of organizes themselves and they have a specific seat at the table. The slaves are at one end, the kings at the other end, but everyone's at the table in these civic rituals. It creates the particular structure whereby that city exists and continues to exist by virtue of its mirroring a particular celestial or heavenly order. So we see this going on in Daniel 5. But what started this whole train of thought was something that goes on in Luke 7. And uh, this set of connections... Um, was something that I noticed during Bridegroom Matins when it described the woman as loosening her hair. And when it said, loosen her hair, I realized, wait a second, that's the word that I know in Numbers chapter 5. You go to Luke chapter 7, I'm just going to read you, this is, by the way, this is my favorite anecdote in all of the Gospels. Um, Luke seven thirty-six. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus said to, something, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. For he who is forgiven little has only a little love. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So there are several things about this that we should notice here. First of all, as I mentioned in my last video, with the context here, people have identified Jesus as a prophet, and they have, ident they have said uh, God has visited his people. This is a personal indwelling of Israel's God to come into contact with his people. That is part of what's going on here. Second of all, note the alabaster flask and note the oil here, because those are two things that in Numbers 5 you are not supposed to bring in with the inspection of jealousy because it is an inspection of jealousy. It is something which can curse you. Here we have both a connection with that old ritual and a change. So 
What goes on in the inspection of jealousy is a woman who's, and the question is of her bridal fidelity. This is clearly in relation to sexual morality, an unfaithful woman. She seems to be a harlot. Um, they go and they go to the presence of God and they drink down holy water mixed with the divine presence. Now here we have, and they do that after having taken off their head covering. Now here the woman has taken off her head covering and she uses it and she wets her hair with her tears and she wipes Jesus's feet with her tears. Now, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. And we read that the Ark of the Covenant, or in a larger sense, the temple, is the footstool of God. Jesus, of course, is the incarnate God. And here he is sitting at a table. Okay, so remember what we said about the tabernacle and the temple. Fundamentally, they are uh, a household, and at the center of that household is a throne with a table. And what this woman does is she goes to the footstool of God, literally, more directly than any footstool that ever existed in the Old Testament. And the holy water here is her tears. Why? Because those tears are infused with the spirit of repentance. And because of that, she goes to a feast, which is where we get the bread part. She goes to a feast and she washes God's feet with those tears of repentance. And here we also see that Jesus makes an analogy between the pardoning of debts. And if you go back to Numbers chapter 5, you will realize what's going on is all about that. First, we've had a reparation offering, or a, not a reparation offering, pardon me, but a reparation in the preceding divine speech, i.e. in the preceding section where the Lord spoke to Moses. Uh, in the preceding speech, if you sin against God with a high hand, you can bring him a reparation, but you also bring a reparation to the person you sinned against if you also sinned against someone in a human way. And then when you offer a offering of barley, that has a particular financial or economic value. In other words, that is part of your assets. Okay, when we talk about someone, they have a million dollars. Most of that is not actually a million dollars. Most of it is held in assets. In other words, you include the value of their house. You include the value of their food. You include the value of their chairs and their computer. And so that's all part of their assets. And we describe it in terms of dollars, but we're not actually talking about currency. We're talking about all of the property that they own. So when you offer part of your harvest, because most people are uh, living in an agrarian context in the Old Testament, and the symbolism is described in those terms, also, because food is the most basic aspect of human life. It's not just an incidental f detail of their culture. It's that we all need food, right? We might not all need a computer, but we all need to eat. Eating makes us up. And so, in a sense, it is the most basic, by definition, aspect of human life, and thus the most universal grammar for symbolism. But when we hear about a reparation, and Jesus de describes here the infinite value that repentance has— it makes sense in the context of Numbers chapter 5. And so we learn several lessons here. We learn, first of all, the woman has re-virginized. And I say I use that word because I think it'll stick in your head. The woman is re-virginized through repentance because that repentance has infinite value because it has been joined with the divine presence because that is what flows out of her eyes. Now think about the idea of tears. If you're familiar with Orthodox theology and Orthodox kind of spiritual practice, you'll know about the gift of tears. The gift of tears is something that's distinct uh, from just normal weeping. 
we talk about confession in terms of a renewal or a baptism. And it's actually quite interesting that this text here has connections with uh, Numbers 5, because Numbers 5, the inspection of jealousy, comes right after this ritual where confession is an integral part. Confession is an extension of baptism. It pulls our baptism into the present. We're baptized and we sin again, so the value of that baptism is extended through repentance, and that is described and signified in terms of tears. And then there's the gift of tears, because the Holy Spirit is signified in water, and out of our eyes, and the word for eye in the Hebrew Bible, ayin, I think is the word, is also the word for well or spring. So it's, uh, if the whole earth is a living icon of the face of God, we have a well or a spring, which signifies God's own tears, which wash the world clean. So, fountains of the great deep burst forth, God weeps over his world, and cleans it by those tears. That's one parable you can get from it. Uh, and so I, uh, I think that that's some of the stuff that we can get out of the connection between this text and those other texts. Um, there's other things you can do with Numbers 5. There are other connections it has with other places in the Bible. Another obvious one, or relatively obvious one, is there in John chapter 8. Because John chapter 8, what happens? It's the woman who's caught in adultery. She's brought to Jesus. She's brought to Jesus in the context of Jesus having taught in the temple area. And Jesus writes something on the ground. Remember about the essential role that writing plays in, uh, uh, in the Old Testament. Jesus writes with his finger. Well, what was written in the Old Testament with a finger? Well, you've got the Ten Commandments, and you have a hand appearing in Daniel chapter 5, which writes something on the walls of this uh, makeshift temple. So we've got the bridal theme. We have the re-virginization theme. God cleanses and pardons and makes up for what could never be made up for in on a human level. And I'm when I use that word, I'm being kind of tongue-in-cheek. Please don't make too much of that. Um, but I think, I think it'll stick with you if, uh, if, if I use weird, weird words like that. Um, so I think uh, that's, that is about, about it. Uh, oh, yeah, you'll notice, actually, uh, that right after that story, uh, we have the story of all of these other women. Right? So Jesus goes through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the gospel of the kingdom of God, and the twelve are with him, and also some of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So here's a, that's a cool connection here. We see in, in Luke's gospel, women are particularly important. Um, I think Richard Balcom has made a pretty good case that uh, Luke was very uh, interested in the gospel women as sources for his narrative. So um, Luke 8 and onwards, onward to the resurrection story, Balcom suggests that Luke interviewed the gospel women. It also seems to make sense of uh, why we have a Marian perspective at the beginning of Luke's gospel. Um, it describes things like Mary treasuring up certain uh, memories in her heart. Uh, it describes her internal states, things which Luke, in a natural sense, uh, would have had to talk to Mary to get. So I think that, that makes thematic sense. So I'll just throw that in there as well. Uh, so I hope you've gotten something out of these videos. And uh, by God's will, uh, I will see you again uh, relatively soon. Please do pray that, you know, I'll keep keep on keeping on with the videos because it's becoming start a bit of a cliche. 
Um, and and you all have graciously not mentioned how it's becoming a cliche. How I don't how I say oh wait I wish I made more videos. Sorry guys, uh, but it it is. So I, I recognize the absurdity of it. So uh, I hope we can avoid that becoming even worse than it is. So uh, I hope you have a wonderful Paschal season, and I will, by God's will, see you again soon.